In this episode of 9 to Y Talks, New York Times national security correspondent David Sanger discusses digital weapons, cyber war, and his urgent new book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, with Nicholas Kristoff. The conversation was recorded on June 19, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So uh, thank you all very much for coming. This is a real treat for me, not only because David's book is, uh, is terrific, I just finished it a few days ago, I commend it, but also, in full disclosure, um, I've known David since the beginning of freshman year in college when we both tried out for the campus newspaper. And um, I could tell you a great story about that meeting, but the problem is that David and I have known each other so long, we have so much ammunition against the other that we <laughs> essentially have mutual assured destruction and <laughs> full deterrence here. So I can't tell you that great story um, unless you find me afterward. Um, but uh, David was uh, uh, best man at our wedding and uh, he's been, whenever I want to understand some intricacies of international relations and security policy, uh, then, then I call David and have learned so much about him. But David is not, in fact, the most important Sanger here today. Uh, his parents are here and I just want to give them a, a shout out. Uh, Ken and Joan Sanger. <laughs> Oh, here we are. Um, and um, in addition, uh, uh, David's wife, Cheryl, is here. And David's perfect taste is indeed to have a wife named Cheryl because one of our similarities we, is my wife is also a Cheryl. And, and both these uh, amazing Cheryls are here. Uh, the two Cheryls. <laughs> um, so, David, let me start off by saying that, you know, in, in some ways, The Perfect Weapon was really kind of a scary book. Um, and I told Cheryl, uh, after I'd finished it, that, boy, I want to make sure we have a little cash at home in case everything goes out for a while. And you start off by um, telling the story <coughs> of Russia taking out the power grid in Western Ukraine in, uh, around Christmas 2015 and describing the uh, Russian engineers in their switching stations watching the cursors move on their screen and they can't control them and it's wiping things out and bringing out the electricity and finally taking it to electricity in their own control room. And I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about what, you know, the, the extreme scenario that gives people nightmares, kind of the Pearl Harbor of cyber attacks, if that happens in the next hour while we're in this conversation and we somehow make our way out to the street. So what, what will that look like? Um, well, first, Nick, thanks uh, for doing this and thank all of you uh, for coming and thanks to all the family members from both Sangers and Kristoffs who, who uh, have shown up. Uh, I'm not sure, when, Nick, when you and I met 40 years ago this fall, we would figure we would be sitting up here doing book talks since the stories we could tell could be so much more interesting, um, <laughs> but not suitable for this audience, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, let's start with Ukraine because it was a really interesting example. So um, there are basically two wars underway in Ukraine. 
there's the one in which the Russians have moved their secret forces in, you know, without uniforms and so forth into the Donbass and, you know, all of the of eastern Ukraine. And then there's the second war that you really don't see, which is the daily cyber war. And that's, Ukraine is, uh, the chapter on Ukraine is called Putin's Petri Dish. And that's exactly how the Russians are dealing with Ukraine. Every single thing that you saw the Russians do in the United States, and maybe a half dozen or so things that the Russians haven't done in the United States yet, um, they've done in Ukraine. So most of what they did was they tinkered with the election. I realize that's sort of shocking. <laughs> they actually got into the computer systems that report on TV, out to the TV what the election results were going to be. And in those reports, threw the election to their favored candidate. In the last hour before the election results were announced, this is when Poroshenko got, got elected, um, somebody caught it. And so the correct results actually were reported, except on Russian TV, where they had already sent them the, the fixed results. So you had a different result announced in Russia than you did in Ukraine. That's pretty good work. Um, and Sounds so, like America, you know, two different networks, maybe. Yeah, I can imagine that. Um, <laughs> I haven't actually thought of sort of the what's the Fox of Ukraine and the MSNBC of Ukraine, but we can we can work on that. Um, but uh, so all of those things were at work. Um, the reports of you know false reports about attacks and so forth; those were all at work. But what was most interesting was that at Christmas time, uh, two years in a row, there were these major blackouts that were triggered. Uh, and in the first one, the one that you described, you had controllers sitting at the control room, sort of skeleton staff, because a lot of people are away for the holiday. And suddenly the lights begin to go out and they are looking on their screens and watching the cursor move around, and they grab their own mice on the table, and they move them, and it's like moving your steering wheel and nothing happening in your car, right? And they watch the entire system go out, and then as a sort of last twist, whoever was doing the remote control went out and killed the emergency power black, uh, supplies for the computer systems so that all of the controllers were also sitting in the dark and their computers were off. The only way that they got their, their electricity back on in a few days was that they called some old timers, some of whom were already retired, and got them to drive around and throw these big manual switches that turned the power back on. So a group of Americans fly out from the Energy Department, Department of Homeland Security, to go look at this and go have a report about could this happen in America? And they came back and they said, well, if we make enough mistakes, yeah, the part where they're moving the computer around, that could happen. But he said, the part about throwing the big switches to get the power back on, that couldn't happen in America because we've taken all of those big manual switches out. We've gotten so computerized that we've left ourselves a vulnerability with no manual backup. 
And that's sort of the equivalent of having an all electronic voting system with no paper backup. So if there were a full kind of Pearl Harbor uh, cyber attack on the US, so we would, uh, after the power goes out here, yeah. we go out on the street, uh, our cell phones don't work, we That's go to right. the ATM. Your ATM's the useless. ATM, we, the bank doesn't have any idea how much money we have. Right, you uh, turn on the water, most of it runs out except for the stuff that's being driven by gravity, right? You go to get your gas and there's no way to go pump it, right? Um, the good news is cable TV goes off for a while, okay? <laughs> Uh, so we, we have a brief period of time in the evening between 7 and 10 where all Americans love each other once again. <laughs> and I predict that lasts for about 48 hours and then they start killing each other. <laughs> and that's the big issue, the sort of rioting in the, in the streets problem that, that comes from this. And also now, with some risk of real physical damage, of dams being open, yeah. this kind of thing. I mean, we forget what the sort of cyber physical connections are because we built more and more and more of them. And that is exactly what the most sophisticated attackers are looking for. When the United States attacked the Natanz nuclear plant in Iran, starting in 2008, 2010, the Iranians thought they were completely safe from this because they had kept their nuclear plant separated from the internet. And if you go to utilities now and you watch, I sat through a recent, um, uh, simulation where they you know, simulate a cyber attack coming. They say, oh, we don't have to worry about this. You know, we've separated out our power grid from the outside internet so someone doesn't get, need to get at it. And uh, I said to them, yeah, we're great for the Iranians, don't you think? Um, so the fact of the matter is there's a way to leap even something that is walled off from the internet. Or as a friend of mine in the military says, um, the, the air gap between the power system and the internet is only as good as the first idiot with a thumb drive. And I think you describe, uh, I forget, was it the Russians or the Chinese who dropped thumb drives in the area around the Pentagon, maybe? They dropped them in a, in a base, in the parking lot of a base in the Middle East, and that's how the Russians got inside the classified Pentagon systems in October of uh, 2008. It was actually just the month that Obama was you know, sort of surging ahead and about to win the win. The and election. we're offering a thumb drive with every copy of the book. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about a thing. Just go home, pop it right in, and it'll order additional copies of the book for you. <laughs> um, and one of the things you recount is actually how we were, how we prepared a plan for such a cyber Pearl Harbor against Iran, and we have that on the shelf. We have not, in fact, actually executed that plan. That's right, it's called Nitro Zeus, uh, and it was really the first big cyber battle plan that was developed by the new US Cyber Command, which has just, in the past few months, risen to become a full command the way um, say, uh, Special Operations Forces is a full command, or uh, Central Command, which handles the Middle East and so forth. And uh, the person who was in charge of the cyber mission teams at the time, General Paul Nakasone, who just got promoted and has become the head of the National Security Agency and the U.S. Cyber Command, uh, a dual-hatted position, um, basically ran this program. And the idea was this that if we got forced into a war with Iran, or 
Israel and Iran went to war and we came to Israel's aid. How would you win the war without ever firing a shot? And the first answer was, turn Iran off. Do just what you just described about you know, Boston to Washington. Pull the plug on everything, including their ability to communicate out to their defense systems. What's interesting about that is that there's a pretty good chance that all future wars will begin with some kind of cyber action like that. And they'd begin with that because you'd want to both blind and paralyze your opponent. And then you have to think that every future war that would be directed at the United States has also got that built in. So do I think it's likely that the Chinese or the Russians are going to come in and unplug everything from Boston to Washington? No, I don't, especially because the Chinese have a significant amount invested in this, or at least they did until last week. Um, uh, but uh, if we got into a conflict, I have no doubt that is how it would start. And that's what people sort of forget when they think about cyber conflict. They think about it as something separate, apart from every other kind of conflict you have. And when you talk to people in the military, they've got the opposite thought, that it's fully integrated with everything else. So it's not as if if you began, you know, when, after the invention of the airplane, you know, people were talking about whether or not there would be air wars. Well, yeah, we've had battles between aircraft, but in fact, we're now all accustomed to the thought 100 years later that the aircraft come in as part of a coordinated campaign and there are other kinds of, you know, ships are landing, troops are landing, missiles are flying, it's just a piece of it. And that's the way you have to think about cyber. And so am I right in thinking that we have implants in uh, throughout Chinese industry, for example, so that we could turn China off if we wanted to, we could turn Russia off if we wanted to, but either of them could turn an awful lot of America off as well, that we are probably somewhat technologically superior in cyber than they are, but at this point, everybody's offense, offensive capabilities are really better than anybody's defensive capabilities, and so we do have the, it's a, you know, it's a little like MAD in the it, nuclear it, age. It is a little like MAD at the very high end, the unplugging of everything. It's not like MAD when you get to the day-to-day -day stuff, and we'll go to that in just a minute. So. When you pick up the paper and you read a story that says that the Russians have put malware in the electric utilities and there's been a warning from the Department of Homeland Security that you know, people should go look for this, or the one I loved the other day, which was they were in all of your home routers and you should turn your router off and back on. And actually it was good advice, but we'll discuss later on why. But when you read that, the first thing you think is, oh my God, the Russians are inside our utilities, they're gonna turn everything off. Okay. But of course, when we put our malware in their systems, we don't expect them to think that we're gonna turn them off, because we're Americans, we're good guys, right? So we expect them to think that we're just doing calm, rational preparation of the battlefield in case something happened, or surveillance. And there's this oddity where we'll discuss endlessly how the Russians are in our system, and because of the wild overclassification of all things cyber, 
we won't discuss what we're doing in their systems. You're not going to come to some kind of agreement here about what's off limits until we begin to admit what we're doing at the same moment that we expose what they're doing. And you made the point, and I think it was one of the most important takeaways I got from the book, that while we do indeed have this deterrence at the Pearl Harbor level, <clears throat> there is essentially no deterrence for more modest attacks. And so North Korea goes and you know, breaks into Sony and uh, causes havoc at Sony. Uh, North Korea goes in and steals $81 million from uh, Bangladesh's central bank. In a, and uh, I think they, they almost stole They tried to steal a bit. More. They made a spelling error. It's just like your mother said, check your spelling before you do this. They would have gotten a billion dollars had they, had, they, Bangladesh. had they not misspelled one word in the orders that went through the Federal Reserve. And when I found the woman who actually caught the spelling error, it turned out she was German and she caught it in English. I thought that was pretty impressive. I'm not sure I would have caught it in German. That, that North Korean <laughs> who spelled that word wrong is probably in a labor camp now. Yes, um, but actually, let, let's go back to your point about Sony, though. It's a really interesting one. So uh, you probably all remember reading about the Sony hack. And you know, the first thing that came out was released emails. It sort of was the foreshadowing of what happened to the Democratic National Committee. But this was 2014. It was two years before the presidential election and, and the Russia hack. Um, and some of the um, emails were amusing. We um, learned that studio executives take extremely long lunches, that they um, gossip about actors and actresses, and uh, that they complained about Angelina Jolie on the set. That was sort of the, the takeaways from the emails. What people ignored was that when the attack finally happened and the North Koreans were inside Sony for three months mapping out their systems, when the attack finally happened, it destroyed 70% of Sony's computing power. Basically melted down almost all of the hard drives in Sony's computers. The only people who saved their data were the ones who were smart enough to reach behind their personal computers at their desk and pull out the, the power cord so that the hard drive stopped spinning. Um, so, it was really intended to be a sabotage kind of attack and was pretty successful at that. Now, go to your point. Supposing for a moment there had been no cyber available to the North Koreans when they wanted to go after Sony, and they went after Sony because Sony had produced a truly terrible movie uh, called um, uh, The Interview uh, that actually imagined the assassination of Kim Jong-un by a bunch of journalists, like you would hire journalists to go assassinate. Did not go over very well with journalists heading to North Korea. I, no, no, it, it, it didn't. And you were going in just around that time, weren't you? Yeah. I did not bring a copy of the DVD. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. Um, you forgot to remind us to stick one in your bag, you know, right? <laughs> um, so um, uh, this movie comes out. The North Koreans first do the only rational thing you do when a movie came out like that. They wrote a letter to the Secretary General of the United Nations asking him to stop the movie from distributing. Uh, when that predictably failed, uh, they went after this, this cyber attack. But imagine that they didn't have cyber. So what would they have done? They would have sent a bunch of saboteurs on a raft. They would have caught an Uber up to the Sony Studios. They would have been talking to each other. They didn't know how many, there were this many cars in the world. And they would have gotten stuck in traffic. 
And they would have gone on the Sony tour and stuck dynamite underneath the computer system and run like hell. And you would have turned on CNN and seen the smoking ruins of the computer center. It's interesting to think that if that happened, it's hard to imagine any American president not making something blow up in Pyongyang. But because they used cyber, there was no smoking image, there was no CNN image, the people at Sony were spending the day trying to figure out what happened to them. The worst that the North Koreans got were some mild sanctions that I bet they never noticed amid every other sanction they've ever gotten. Yeah, I mean, it seems deeply problematic that North Korea benefited from, you know, hacking and stealing this $81 million from Bangladesh. I mean, arguably benefited from the, certainly regarded the Sony hack as a success, that Russia I think clearly regards the hack of the U.S. electoral system as a as a huge success to this very day, and um, and we have not been able to establish any kind of a system of deterrence. Now you describe President Obama being told by aides that uh, they could um, either embarrass. Vladimir Putin by showing his secret accounts, they could make money in his accounts disappear, or they could uh, they could do various other. They could things. unplug the Russians from the world financial system. And President Obama decided not to do that. Right. Um, do you think that it was a mistake for him not to push back harder and to try to establish more clear lines of deterrence? I do believe it was a mistake, and some people who left the Obama administration or left, uh, left Washington or, or left their offices after uh, President Trump came in, certainly said to me in the course of interviews that if they had that one to play back, they would. But others have defended it. Susan Rice has defended it. Lisa Monaco, uh, who's the, um, uh, running the Homeland Security operation, has defended it. It'd be interesting to see when President Obama's um, uh, memoirs come out uh, in a year or so, what he has to go uh, say about it. So I think he made a mistake, but let me lay out for you the argument, the case he made for not doing anything. The case he made was one of escalation. Okay, supposing we go before the election and unplug the Russians. <clears throat> supposing we reveal shock of shocks that the oligarchs have given billions of dollars to, to Putin and that he's keeping it offshore. And Putin decides to escalate. Their fear was he would escalate by messing with the registration systems or the election machines on election day. And that that would play into the Donald Trump argument that you remember from that time, this election is rigged. They assumed Trump would lose, that it might be close, and that they would be feeding a Donald Trump narrative that he had lost the election only because it was rigged. And they did not want to let Putin have that case. So that was the thinking pattern. The concern I have about this is not simply the decision they made there, Nick. It's that we think of the DNC hack in isolation. In fact, as the book describes, it was preceded by at least three major hacks of the US government, all by the same Russian intelligence agencies. One into the State Department that really brought down the State Department's ability to operate for a long time. One into the unclassified email systems of the White House, one into the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
The Obama administration decided not to name the Russians publicly in any of those, although we published stories saying it was likely the Russians, and decided not to punish them. So you're Vladimir Putin, and you think, they didn't punish me for going into the White House? My hackers fought the NSA for two weeks inside the White House system just to show that they could stay around? You describe these incredible scenes of the uh, you know, of, of the, the White Hats, our side, fighting the hackers from Russia and in this sort of cat and mouse game. And I mean, they're fighting back. Uh, it was remarkable. Yeah, it was really an amazing thing. They, they didn't expect the Russians to do this. Usually you expose a group of hackers in a computing system. They sort of, you know, scatter. It's a little bit like, you know, opening the cabinet under your, under your, uh, under your sink and, you know, whatever's walking around in there, the roaches or whatever, walk away. Um, or run away. That didn't happen in this case. They stayed and fought just to show that they could. So if you're Putin, your calculus is, if they're not going to defend that, who cares about the DNC? It's basically run by a bunch of college kids. Um, and we could indeed have respond. I mean, I, I, I do think there is a legitimate point that uh, if we had responded before the election, that Putin could indeed have blown up the, the uh, electoral system that doesn't really explain why in the months after the election um, President Obama did not, you know, for example, make Putin, make, it, make his money disappear or, uh, right. or really try to embarrass him in, in response, to try to create a cost for this kind of behavior. Well, remember, they were kind of stunned for the first month because the election hadn't quite turned out according to the plan, right? Uh, secondly, they had thought whatever they laid out to do against the Russians, Hillary would then pick up and she'd continue it. They weren't counting on somebody saying, Russians? They had, what do what Russians have to do with this? Um, the third thing is they came up with the most sort of normal uh, kinds of uh, penalties. Um, they threw out a bunch of diplomats who were actually spies um, one of our mutual friends who was in the administration, Nick, said to me the day they did this, we have just come up with the perfect 19th century solution to a 21st century problem. Um, one of the reasons that they closed some of these facilities, including the one out in Long Island, was that they discovered that the Russians, in addition to using this as a uh, recreation facility, that part of the recreation was digging down under the property and tapping into a giant trunk line that was going into down, down into the financial district and basically getting into the system through this cable that for years had been buried underneath conveniently where the Russians had their estate. Um, and then as for President Trump, he, uh, I think he, he phoned you after he met Putin to give his analysis of uh, Putin's role in this. This was a remarkable day. So we were out in, he doesn't do this all that often. Um, we were out in Hamburg, it was last summer, it was just about a year ago right now, uh, for the uh, G20 uh, summit. And it was the first time, and actually now the only time so far, that President Trump and President Putin had met. And um, they sat for two hours and, and uh, met there. And um, then the president got on Air Force One. That was the same trip back in which he um, wrote the somewhat fictional account that uh, the meeting with the Russians that his son had been involved in was all about adoption problems, right? But before he got 
to writing the adoption statement, um, he called me. I was checking out of my little hotel in Hamburg, and the phone rang. And um, I had been given brief warning by one of his aides. He was about to go call. And he basically made a case, which he, he did off the record then, but I can describe it because he, as soon as he landed, he did the same thing on the record. Uh, he made the case that Vladimir Putin had said to him that it couldn't have been Russia that was involved in the hack of the election because the Russians were so good that they never would have gotten caught. And I said, well, you know, Mr. President, that's not really the kind of hack this was. This was intended to be seen, right? You publish the, the fruits of the hack, which were the emails in the DNC and John Podesta. It was not exactly a hidden thing. And he just sort of glided right past that and said, ah, they wouldn't have been caught. Well, so that, that solves that issue. Yeah, glad we got that out of the way. I feel better now. <laughs> um, and um, another um, major power has obviously been in the news in this context, uh, China and, uh, and ZTE and, um, and also Huawei. Um, and there are a lot of other issues involving China, involving trade, involving intellectual property, and their attempt to dominate certain um, high-tech sectors. But <clears throat> there is also this basic question of um, whether they are trying to use Chinese products like ZTE phones, Huawei devices, to um, get a, a wedge into the U.S. economy. Should we be concerned about that? Well, we should. Um and not just get a wedge into the economy, but get a wedge into the technology. So um, of these two firms, Huawei is the larger and the bigger concern. And in addition to making um, handsets for phones, basically making cell phones, while you may not see many of them in the United States, which is not an accident, the US government has gone about doing everything they can to make it hard for AT&T and Verizon and others to sell them, uh, they are ubiquitous when you were in Asia. In fact, I was in Singapore last week for um, the remarkable meeting between Kim Jong-un and uh, uh, President Trump, and I went down to grab some lunch uh, in my uh, sort of a mall attached to my hotel, and I went by a Huawei cell phone store, and I walked in just to see it. Basically, you know, everything you would buy in an Apple store, sort of iPhone-like, they had it all was a lot cheaper, but they had it all. But the other thing about Huawei is they sell the switching equipment. And they're going to be one of the largest producers of 5G networks, the networks that you'll use over your cell phone that will radically increase the speed at which you can do web searches and so forth when you are away from a wireless environment. And uh, the NSA had to come to the conclusion, are we gonna let them build in the US? And the answer that it came down to was, no, they wouldn't. Now, I can understand that, but you have to remember that when you go through the Snowden documents, and the Times had a, a good size of that trove, one of the things we found was that the United States had done to Huawei exactly what we charged Huawei with doing in the United States. We had broken into their internal systems in Beijing, figured out everything we could about their own networking capability, so that when Huawei sold to a country we didn't like, say Venezuela or something, we had an easy way to get into their system. Well, I can understand, that's your taxpayer dollars at work at the NSA, and that's fine, 
But if you want to set a norm that we're not going to get into each other's networks to begin to destroy them from within, that probably wasn't a great way to start. Yeah, I must say that uh, when Cheryl and I were living in China in the late 80s, early 90s, the U.S. was selling a lot. It was very much helping China upgrade its, uh, its uh, telecommunications. And American companies upgraded its telecommunications in ways that gave U.S. intelligence a perfect way to, 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 to listen to Chinese conversations. And uh, we then sold a, an airplane to be the Air, For the Air Force One for China. And, uh, complete with every possible listening device. Uh, uh, they finally had to use the, the plane for, for other purposes. I, I remember this because <laughs> the Chinese sent the plane back with the interior ripped apart and the little wires and everything dangling, saying, could you guys take this stuff out and send it back to us? <laughs> <laughs> um. But, you know, China raises another question. So we've got two China issues. One of them, Nick, is the technology issue that we just described, and why the president gave ZTE a pass the other day is beyond me, while charging that bringing in Canadian lumber was a national security threat. I, I somehow get, I, I understand the concern, even if you argue with it on the ZTE handsets. I, I'm not quite as worried about the logs coming over from, from Canada. Um, but the bigger issue is, you know, back in the days when Cheryl and I were living in Tokyo, and you and Cheryl were living in Beijing. We'd go over there, and you would hear Americans lecture, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of this. I remember going with Bill Clinton hearing this, that the internet would set China free. That the more connectivity we sold to the Chinese, the more it would undercut the authority of the, um, uh, of the Communist Party. Well, it hasn't quite worked out that way. The, Communist Party has figured out how to make this technology a great instrument of repression. And so let me turn the tables for a moment, and you know China a whole lot better than I do. What were we missing? Why did we think that this great American invention called the Internet was going to change China rather than China changing the Internet? You know, one of the dangerous things about journalism these days is information retrieval is so much easier, and so people can find really embarrassing articles we wrote years ago. And I think I wrote one in 1993 about how the information revolution was clearly transforming China. Um, and uh, there was, I think, this very broad perception among Chinese as well as foreigners that this was really tilting the fundamental balance. And, uh, Liu Xiaobo, the great Chinese dissident, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, described the internet as God's gift to the Chinese people. And um, as you know, he died in prison, uh, serving a, a, a sentence. Uh, and it did not work out that way. And on the one hand, it has genuinely been used by uh, a tool for connectivity, uh, for information by some dissidents. But even more than that, I'd say it's been used as a tool for information control by the authorities. And you're really seeing that in particular in uh, Xinjiang in the far west, the, the largely Muslim uh, region, where the government is so concerned about uh, resistance, about uh, people taking on the government, that there are regular roadblocks and there, there, there are eye scans, there are uh, Every car is now going to be registered, so people can, so the state security and public security can know where any given car is at any moment with locator beacons. 
And I think we kind of missed the degree to which, to which uh, the government was going to be using these same technologies for control as dissidents were trying to use them as leverage against an ossified system. Um, I do think that over time, I mean, having covered uh, overthrows of uh, authoritarian governments in Taiwan and Indonesia, uh, Mongolia, um, South Korea, um, the Philippines, uh, I do think that some of the forces that have been set in motion in China, the rise of middle class, greater education, create some impatience for participation, and that over time that puts pressure on the government, but it's a pretty long tether. And um, so, I, and I think we completely missed, uh, missed that fact. And I think we did, and um, I um, appreciate your candor in, in noting your own article, though I don't think that was any place close to the most embarrassing columns that you have that I you know, ever wrote. written at the time. But <laughs> probably but wouldn't we, make the top we, 10. We only, we, only, we only have an hour, and I, I, I couldn't bring the list. Um, but um, the, um, we've missed it in another way. So one of the most fascinating hacks that happened to the US government that we were tuned out to was the Office of Personnel Management, the most boring bureaucracy in Washington. And uh, OPM collects all of um, the security files when somebody applies for a security clearance. And they had a database of 22 million of these people who'd gotten security clearances, people who had tried to get security clearances. And to do that, you have to fill out this incredibly detailed form. It's called an SF-86. And if anybody in the room has ever filled one out, it has made your life miserable. Because we're not just talking about your social security number you have to list every foreigner you ever uh, knew. You have to list financial details, medical details, stuff about your kids, stuff about your spouse, stuff about people who preceded your spouse, stuff about people who aren't your spouse, okay? <laughs> There's a lot of material in there that um, you could imagine could be enormously useful to an intelligence service. So, um, what did the U.S. government do with this? First, it didn't recognize how valuable it was. Secondly, because OPM did not have enough computer space to go store all of this and Congress wanted them to store the data uh, someplace uh, inexpensive, they stored it at the Interior Department where it got all the same protections as, say, bison migration in Yellowstone. The Chinese came in and for a year they cleared this stuff out. We had not encrypted it. The Chinese encrypted it as they sent it out so we wouldn't see what they were encrypting, what, what, what the data was. It was great, too, because after all of this was discovered, in the Federal Register one day comes up a contract to encrypt all of OPM's data. And I wrote about it, and I said, why don't we give the contract to the Chinese? I've already done the work already. <laughs> the OPM general counsel did not think that was as funny as I did. Um, so. Um, uh, so then the U.S. government has to notify everybody who lost their data. And what's the first thing they did? They gave a year of free credit protection, as if this was about stealing your credit card numbers. This had nothing to do with stealing your credit card numbers. This had to do with the Chinese using big data to build a database of who worked on what projects, how, 
what their roles were in the US government, combined it with material we believe stolen from Anthem and other healthcare, so that they had more data. So that if, if Nick, if you showed up as a young um, second secretary uh, at the US embassy, you go to the airport and you're in Beijing, you land, you're about to take up your job, and they go in and they look in this database, they may discover that you had a career other than an interest in you know, being the second secretary for agriculture in the embassy. So the CIA had to cancel assignments all throughout China. It's an interesting example of how the modern age has enabled countries to do far more than they could have with old surveillance. Because 10 years ago, if you'd stolen 22 million security files, you wouldn't know what to do with them. Mm. But once the Chinese developed the computing power and the algorithms to go break it down and combine them and figure, gee, David and Nick have known each other for 40 years and here's where they intersected, then it's a far more powerful thing. And so that, I mean, so Jim Clapper after that said uh, that the US would not retaliate, would not respond, because basically the Chinese had done nothing wrong. They had done, they had scored an intelligence coup that we wish we could have done He said outright, if I could have done it, I would have done it. Yeah. And um, that's certainly true if one is stealing a secret. It feels a little bit different if you're stealing an archive. And should we be trying to change, amend the norm so that uh, the norms of international behavior, the norms of what intelligence agencies do, and thus, for that reason, try to respond and create some kind of penalty for that. So I've, I've had this debate with General Clapper, who's written an interesting memoir that's come out in, in, in recent times. And I would argue that if you have stolen that much data, about 7% of the U.S. population, and basically an elite 7% that have security clearances and, and, and so forth, and you are using that for some other purpose and could use it actually for all kinds of offensive purposes, that you've done something that's a little more than espionage. I wouldn't necessarily call it a cyber attack, but I don't think it's standard espionage. Now, supposing we tried to set the norm that you just described, or supposing we said, yeah, the norm should be you shouldn't steal people's security files because you're going after individuals and their kids and their families, and by the way, you shouldn't go in and hack into election machines because we want to preserve the integrity of elections around the world. And while we're at it, let's not go after the power supplies that could turn off hospitals because who wants to attack people who are already in the hospital? Well, those are three pretty good norms. And I imagine if we had put together sort of a digital Geneva Convention, an idea that Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, has had, that might be on our list. My guess is, the American intelligence agencies would be among the first to, be obje to object to, to this. Hmm. What do you mean we can't go steal the security files in Russia or China? What do you mean that we couldn't prepare to turn off part of a, a whole part of a city? Um, what do you mean that uh, we can't mess with an election system? I mean, the CIA was messing with election systems in Italy and Latin America for years before the Russians got around to it. Um, by the way, you were you mentioned just being in Singapore for the Kim Jong Un Trump uh, summit. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to ask you this, but there were reports that the journalists were being handed these uh, little fans, USB fans that plug into your laptop. 
Uh, and the suspicion was that this was all some intelligence operation by somebody. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I got one of them. Uh, they actually <laughs> came from the South Koreans. Um, it's actually uh, attached to your iPhone back in the green room oh, right great, now. Oh, great, great. We'll get President Moon on the line in a moment. <laughs> um, we have a, a few questions uh, from, uh, from all of you. Um, uh, one person asks, how dangerous is North Korea cyber-wise? What is their, their level of skill? Well, as we could tell from the Sony hack and from Nick's story about um, the Bangladeshi bank, they're getting a lot better. Are they at Russia, uh, China, US levels? No, uh, but let's say they're playing really good um, uh, minor league ball at this point and getting better faster. One of the other really fascinating stories, though, is we've used cyber against them. And you know, in the back of the book, uh, just on the back cover, there's an excerpt from our Left of Launch program, which is a program basically to try to attack North Korean missiles before they are launched using cyber and other means because we don't really trust that our missile defenses would necessarily work. And President Obama authorized a program like that in, um, the, in January of 2014. And Bill Broad and I wrote about it uh, in the Times uh, last year. It was an interesting experience because it was the first time we had to deal with the Trump administration uh, about a story that was of sensitive national security um, implications. And the, uh, you'll read the scenes in here where basically Nobody had briefed the senior members of the Trump administration. They had this thing up and running. Uh, but uh, this is a really interesting case in, for North Korea because we were hacking into their missile system while they were hacking into Sony. And it tells you just what each side considers most important. They were most upset about the publication or the distribution of a movie about Kim Jong-un we were most upset about missiles that might eventually reach the United States. And the left of launch intervention seemed to have been f successful. A bunch of uh, missiles fell out of the sky. Uh, so it at least, it probably delayed things rather than was a, a long-term right. impediment. Is that In fact, the way we got onto the story was that Bill Broad and I were looking at the missile launch success rates for the North Koreans. And Bill said to me at one point, 88% failure rate? And these guys have launched missiles for a long time? And we, this, this can't be all accidental. And we spent basically eight months digging into it until we finally figured out how the US had done this. You write repeatedly about uh, reporting on some of these very sensitive issues and having conversations with an administration that uh, asks you not to publish certain things, trying to weigh what to publish, what not to publish. Um, you also write about uh, General James Cartwright uh, a friend of yours, a friend of mine, who uh, was once called uh, Obama's favorite general. He was vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, then um, uh, was prosecuted not for leaking, but for not fully disclosing uh, to the FBI information. And you, you write about feeling very guilty about about that, um, can you talk a little bit sure, about, sure. about that, well, about the it, reporting challenges and the concern about you know the, the people that you're trying to extract information from, I mean, they, you're also very concerned about them, obviously. That's right, and this goes to something 
close to our hearts, which is protection of sources, all the more important in the era that we are in uh, right now at a time that this administration, like the Obama administration, is prosecuting a lot of people for leaks or suspected leaks. And Jim Cartwright was a, a complicated case. He uh, was the former head of Strategic Command, which runs uh, nuclear weapons, but he also was one of the big thought leaders in how the United States military would get into cyber. And for the previous book I, I did, which came out six years ago, called Confront and Conceal, it revealed Olympic Games, which was the code name for the attacks on, on Iran. And as we do at the Times, whenever we're doing a, a sensitive story, we went and told the US government about it. And I describe in this book what that process was like, went to the White House, the Obama White House, um, and said to them, look, it's gonna be our decision what we publish or not, but if you have ongoing concerns about ongoing operations, military operations, intelligence operations, think somebody could get killed, something like that, let's discuss it now before we publish. And that got me into a very lengthy, um, on the record, back and forth with the deputy director of the CIA, which I describe in, in this book, as, we, as I described to him what I was getting ready to publish. It's a minor request of things for us to leave out that didn't get to the actual story very much, but really to the technologies they were using against the Iranians. But I was also sent by the White House to go talk to General Cartwright, who was retired at the time. He had just retired. He had been passed over for chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And I'm convinced that General Cartwright believed that he was part of the effort to try to have an honest conversation with me about what would be damaging or not. And let's face it, you can't have those kind of conversations until, unless you were discussing classified material. But the government's got no choice. A reporter shows up and says, we're getting ready to publish a story. We need to have an, a, an adult conversation about it. And he got caught up in that web. And that's why I feel so guilty about it, because I am absolutely 100% convinced he is both a patriot and was doing his best to give me some guidance about what would truly be damaging or not, and got caught up in this FBI investigation. And I, that's one of the reasons these investigations are so pernicious, is not simply that they went after this for four years and interviewed 150 people to try to figure out where leaks came from, which was a ridiculous waste of federal resources, but because they were clamping down on a system that fundamentally works in which government officials try to have a trusted conversation with reporters about what would truly be damaging or not. And if they're gonna go after sources like that, we're less likely to have those conversations. We're, um, we're almost out of time, but uh, there are a couple more things I want to ask about. Uh, a couple of people ask about the Russian hacks uh, of the elections. Uh, one asks, do you think the 2015 Russian hack of the DNC may have changed the course of American democracy? And another asks, uh, do you have confidence that the 2018 midterms will be uh, safe from cyber attack? Um, second one first, I have no confidence that it will be safe. There's some good work that's been done uh, and some states are waking up to this and there's some good projects underway to go uh, make these things safer. But the fact of the matter is what we needed after the 2016 election was a 9-11 kind of commission that learned everything there was to learn about the hack on a non-political basis, not trying to determine whether President Trump was legally elected, legitimately elected, so forth, but simply 
what happened so that we could build the defenses. And it got so wrapped up in the president's concern that any investigation would undercut his legitimacy that we missed our opportunity to learn the big lessons from that. The 2015 beginnings of the hack, the story is told in here and it builds on a, a lengthy piece that we wrote in uh, the end of 2016 with uh, my colleagues uh, Eric Lipton and Scott Shane about what happened. And it was a really a remarkable story of the ball being dropped. But the short version of it is that the FBI got onto the fact that there was something happening in the DNC. So they called over to the DNC, an overworked, overloaded FBI agent, and um, tried to reach somebody. And you'll all appreciate this. He got connected to the help desk. The guy who finally answered him didn't believe he was an FBI agent. They spent nine months exchanging phone calls back and forth fruitlessly, during which time the Russians got John Podesta's stuff. A different Russian intelligence agency came in and cleared out the rest of the DNC. It was more than nine months before the President of the United States even learned that there was an issue here. There are babies in this country who were conceived and born in the time that it took the United States to figure out that the Russians were inside the DNC. In the end, as the book reports, the biggest warning we got came not from us, but from our British friends at GCHQ, the equivalent of the NSA in Britain, who saw traffic from the DNC running in Russian lines that they were observing and sent a notice back to the NSA. And they got a very polite thank you note. But not a whole lot was done. So as somebody says in the book, it's not that we had the radar off. We hadn't even built the right radar. And that's what worries me about the 2018 election and 2020. It might be the Russians. It might the next time be the Chinese if they get unhappy enough about the tariffs. It could be the Iranians, if they get unhappy enough about the nuclear deal. And we don't have a full understanding yet of where all the vulnerabilities are. One last question. So now you've scared us about our vulnerabilities. Yeah. Um, so aside from the policy questions, what can each of us do individually to mitigate our own personal vulnerability? A lot of people ask me um, this question. So you basically got two choices. One is uh, move to the middle of Montana, live in a log cabin that has no electricity, no computing power, and you're going to be fine, OK? <laughs> Option number two, you live on the Upper East Side in New York. You're probably not going to do the log cabin thing, OK? So a few things you should go do that are the equivalent of putting locks on your doors and your windows and having an alarm system, right? So if you don't have two-factor authentication on your systems, all of them, your credit cards, your bank accounts, that's the part where you sign in and then some signal is sent to your cell phone and you have to type in the code and it's a complete pain in the neck. But you want to go do it. And by the way, it's not a panacea. If you live in a country where the phone company is owned by the central government, like China, when that code comes back to you, you're not the only one reading it, okay? So remember that. There are, are all kinds of ways to do two-factor authentication. But you want to do that. It gets rid of 85% of the problem, the sort of criminal part of this. Um, you want to make sure that you're using a good, strong password manager. 
because there's no way that you're going to remember all the passwords you have and using, you know, your pet's name uh, is probably not like the safest thing you could possibly do and using it for everything is not the safest thing you could go do. So um, those are all the usual. But the way to think about this is the way you think about defending your own house. So you're expected to have good locks on your door. You're expected to have an alarm system. You're expected not to leave the back door open, right? But you're not expected to defend yourself against an incoming missile from a foreign state. That's what the US government's supposed to go do. And so much of this book is about state-sponsored cyber activity. And frankly, if the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or the North Koreans are going to come after you, they're going to get inside. There's not a lot you can do. You might slow them down briefly, but they're going to get there. And so then the question is, what is, what's the responsibility of the U.S. government? And what you discover the more you get into this is the responsibility is spread all around so that everyone's responsible, which is to say no one's responsible. And it kind of worried me the other day when John Bolton um, became the national security advisor, worried me on several accounts, but, um, <laughs> but the part that really worried me was that he, in the first days, he got rid of the two people in the White House who were most responsible for cyber activity at a time that the intelligence agencies tell Congress that the number one threat we are facing today is a cyber threat, ahead of terrorism, ahead of nuclear proliferation, you know, all of those things. And they decided not to replace the cyber coordinator for the US government. So I called over and I said, clearly you guys think we're over-coordinated in, uh, in the cyber arena. Um, but that really concerns me because I am worried that we have an administration that is thinking in sort of old terms about what the threats are and Look, I went out to Singapore, as Nick, as you know, I write a lot about nuclear issues, making sure we get rid of the North Korean nuclear threat is a huge issue. But pretending that the new threats have not come out there and eliminating the people who would sort of get the White House thinking about that, I don't understand that part. Well, if you want to understand more, then I do commend uh, David's book. He will be signing, um, I believe, right over here. And uh, thank you all very much for coming, and please join me in thanking David for joining us tonight. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org. <laughs>